This is The Guardian. Today, is India's democracy under attack? Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. In his ninth year as Prime Minister, Narendra Modi's approval rating is still soaring at home. His polling stands at a staggering 76%, which is the envy of other world leaders. This year, he has taken over the presidency of the G20, an annual summit of world leaders, to an unusual amount of fanfare at home. If you go to India right now, you can't go one kilometer in a city like Delhi without coming across massive billboards announcing India's presidency of the G20. It's being presented as India's moment in the sun when the world will finally recognize Modi's brilliance. Internationally, Modi has been heralded as this shining example of political success as leader of the world's biggest democracy, ruling over 1.4 billion people, he is routinely courted by Western leaders keen to build strong economic bonds with India. But the cost of doing business with Modi means turning a blind eye to widespread criticism that he is eroding India's democratic institutions. They've all made enormous efforts to bow down to Modi and have really never held him to account for what has been happening in India since he came to power. At home, the judiciary, the media, the political opposition all seem under threat from the ruling BJP, the Bharatiya Janita Party. But a controversial defamation case against the Congress Party's Rahul Gandhi has stoked a fiery backlash. He's one of India's most well-known political names, but if prosecutors have their way, Rahul Gandhi could become the country's most famous prisoner. With the country's next election a year away, and Modi's main political rival facing the prospect of a prison sentence, could the opposition be defeated before the campaign even officially begins? India is a democracy three times the size of the United States, three times the size of Europe, and if this democracy crumbles, it will be a huge setback for democracy on the ground. From The Guardian, I'm Noshi Nikbal. Today in Focus, the court case pushing Indian democracy to the very brink. Pankaj Mishra. You're an author, journalist, and a keen Modi watcher. Let's start with the basics. Why is Narendra Modi so popular at home after almost a decade in power? What is his appeal? 
I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge that he offers to a lot of people in India the possibility of modernization, progress, material improvement, all those things that far too many people in India feel they've been cruelly deprived of by previous governments. And then there is, of course, you know, an incredible propaganda machinery which has managed to identify various enemies of their aspirations, people like the liberal cosmopolitan elite, the English-speaking elite, Muslims, of course. So these people who he has successfully portrayed as standing in the way of India's progress, he sort of simply put together an incredibly seductive cocktail of grievances, aspirations, hopes, and one reason why he's become unchallengeable. So what about that material improvement? I mean, have people's lives, their standard of living, gotten better under Modi? Well, I mean, in one sense, he's been very generous with various state programs, you know, like making cooking gas available to a lot of Indians who previously were denied it. The other side is, of course, incredible levels of economic mismanagement, demonetization being one of those uh, harebrained policies that nearly brought India to its knees a few years ago. I mean, in an overnight sort of rendering most of India's currency notes in circulation null and void. We have decided that the 500 rupee and 1000 rupee currency notes will no longer be legal tender from midnight to night. What we've also seen is a very small number of people getting unimaginably rich. In fact, there's a whole plutocracy that has come into being in a way that we've only really seen recently in Russia. And what has resulted in this extraordinarily unequal dispensation in India today, where, you know, 1% of the country's population owns uh, much of its wealth. So much is written about India being the world's largest, most vibrant democracy, and that the world may now be living in India's century. But what does the reality of Modi's rule really look like? Well, the reality is incredibly contrary to the image that that is being projected. So I think we need to move beyond stereotypes and cliches when discussing the state of Indian democracy today. We must acknowledge that it's in very serious crisis. And it is because the country is actually run by a party that is hell-bent upon transforming India, a secular democracy, into a Hindu majoritarian state. They've never tried to obscure this project of theirs. Narendra Modi, the current Indian Prime Minister, has spent all his life working as a foot soldier, essentially, for this project. The RSS training starts at an early age, in sessions like these. It's a massive paramilitary-style organisation that peddles a potent brand of nationalism and has long been a political nursery for the ruling BJP. India's Prime Minister, Deputy Prime Minister and the current caretaker Chief Minister of Gujarat have all been members of the RSS, along with millions of Indians. In order to force it into this mould of Hindu majoritarianism, you have to do incredible violence to its democratic institutions, to its civil society, to its social fabric. And that is what we have seen over the last eight, nine years an incredible amount of violence 
being unleashed against practically every major institution in the country. Hannah Ellis-Peterson, you're the Guardian South Asia correspondent based in Delhi, and you've been covering what Pankaj has described as an assault on Indian democracy. One huge case that is causing uproar is that of Modi's political rival, Rahul Gandhi. He was convicted of defamation and dramatically thrown out of parliament last month. And it is a move that many see as being influenced by the might of Narendra Modi. Before we get to that, can you first tell us a bit about Rahul Gandhi himself? So Rahul Gandhi is the most recognisable face of India's opposition. He has been the leader of India's Congress Party, which uh, is a party which has huge amounts of history in India. It ruled India for decades and it was seen as India's most powerful party really until 2014, the election of Modi. And Rahul Gandhi is part of one of the most powerful and influential political families in India. His great-grandfather was Nehru, who was India's first prime minister. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. His grandmother was Indira Gandhi, who was also one of India's most powerful prime ministers, the first female prime minister. His father was Rajiv Gandhi, who was assassinated. And his mother, Sonia Gandhi, took over as leader of the Congress party. So he, even though he is no longer the president of Congress, he is nonetheless seen as the kind of most recognisable face of India's opposition. So the Gandhis, and it's worth mentioning that they bear no relation to Mahatma Gandhi, perhaps the most famous Indian to hold that name. The Gandhis are a huge deal in the country's history. Rahul Gandhi no longer leads the Congress party, but he is still a member and as you say, the most prominent face of the opposition. And his recent problems began with a speech he made in 2019, where he said, and I quote, A small question. How is it that all these names, these thieves' names, are Modi? I'm sure if we look harder, other Modis will emerge. Which, you know, it seems unremarkable in the cut and thrust of politics. But it has had dramatic consequences for him. Anna, can you explain what's happened? Well, this kind of came out of nowhere. So in 2019, whilst on the election trail in his unsuccessful fight against Modi, Raul Gandhi made a speech deemed to be insulting to the prime minister and other people with the surname Modi. And he made a comment to this rally in the state of Karnataka saying, why do all the thieves have Modi as a common surname? And... You know, hundreds of miles away in Gujarat, a member of Modi's BJP party, Panesh Modi, decided that this was a personal offence to him and to 130 million other Modis that are in India and filed a defamation case against Rahul Gandhi. It moved at a pace which is very common to the Indian courts. It moved very slowly. Over two years, there were maybe four hearings and Panesh Modi, the man who brought the case, he then made this very unusual request for the case to be halted, which doesn't usually come from the person who's brought the case. Mm. The case remained kind of indefinitely on pause until February of this year, when suddenly Panesh Modi went back to the Gujarat High Court saying that he had some vague new evidence and he wanted the case to continue. 
there was a very considerable shift in the pace. Considering that Indian courts have a backlog of 40 million cases and it can take years for cases to even get their first hearing, this one was already in the courts by the end of February. And by March, the judge was ready with a verdict. Gandhi's been sentenced to two years in jail but remains free for the moment on bail pending an appeal. Gandhi's opposition Congress party and allies accuse the governing BJP of using defamation laws to silence critics. He says he won't be intimidated. Gandhi was sentenced to two years in jail, the maximum possible sentence, and also the sentence necessary to get him expelled from parliament. It is worth saying here at this point that the BJP have denied any involvement in Gandhi's case, which, to be clear, is alleging that he has defamed the entire Modi community. Now, the BJP say that the court's decision to pursue Gandhi was an independent one, but people still have a lot of questions. Can you explain why? Well, there is the interesting timing of this case. You know, Rahul Gandhi has been seen for years to be a pretty ineffectual opposition leader, as elitist, as out of touch, as not fully holding the BJP government to account for their Hindu nationalist politics, for their attacks on minorities. In many ways, he's been accused of trying to do a kind of soft Hindu nationalism. And uh, last month, he had been causing a huge storm in Parliament where he'd been raising questions about Prime Minister Modi's connections to this billionaire industrialist, Gautam Adani. And Adani was seen as really the kind of face of India's progress, everything from India's green energy to its infrastructure, to its bridges, to its coal, to its electricity. He was the richest man in India, Asia's richest man. You know, he overtook Jeff Bezos in how wealthy he was. But that will change at the beginning of this year when a relatively unknown Wall Street firm released a two-year report into the Adani Group, accusing his company of the largest fraud in corporate history. Overseas in India, shares of Adani Group companies continued to slide for a third straight session following a report from short seller Hindenburg that accused the conglomerate of stock manipulation and an accounting fraud scheme. Hindenburg said Adani had engaged in stock manipulation, they had eye-watering levels of debt and secret offshore accounts. And Modi, who has never done a press conference in his nine years in power, has been silent on all questions about his ties to Adani. The Adani group hit back and denied all the allegations as baseless in a response that stretched to 413 pages. It described the Hindenburg report as an attack on India itself and insisted its debt levels conformed to industry standards. The fundamentals of our company are very strong. Our balance sheet is healthy and assets robust. So this was something of an open goal for Rahul Gandhi when this report came out. He'd been leading protests. He'd been demanding government investigations into the government's relationships to Adani, into Modi's relationships with Adani, into how Adani had been given government projects. And this united various opposition groups. So it wasn't just Congress. It was a whole array of opposition groups who are usually very fragmented. And this was seen to be causing quite a lot of embarrassment to Modi. How many times did you travel together with Adani ji? How many times did Adani ji join you later on a visit? Yeah. 
How many times did Adani ji travel to a country immediately after you did? Yeah. Good question. And in how many of these countries after you visited did Adani ji get a contract? Oh. And it's worth saying that Adani has denied that his relationship with Modi has resulted in any favorable treatment for the company. So just as Gandhi is gaining some traction and causing a real headache with some of these incendiary accusations that he's leveling at Modi, suddenly he's muzzled by the courts. He loses his political seat. He's thrown out of his MP's residence. And now he's waiting on a verdict tomorrow. How has this all gone down? It was seen by critics, by observers, by opponents as a step up in terms of the assault on the political opposition, which is something that has been happening kind of systematically since the BJP came to power in 2014. I've been disqualified because the prime minister is scared of my next speech. He's scared of the next speech that is going to come on Adani, right? That is why first the distraction, now the disqualification. Hannah, this isn't the first time the BJP has been accused of going after opposition politicians. What makes this different? So this is just an escalation of what has been going on for years. And in particular, the Modi government has been accused of using investigation agencies, those who investigate criminality and fraud, to investigate and target opposition politicians. So according to government statistics, 95% of political investigations by these agencies are against opposition politicians. Oh, wow. And they've used these tactics to cripple state governments that are run by rival parties and as a means to continue to divide the opposition very effectively. You know, collectively as an opposition, if they really came together, all these different parties would have a pretty viable option of defeating the BJP in an election. But fragmented and separate as they are now, they do not. And how strong is the case against Gandhi? Do we know or can we speculate about what is likely to happen to him? You know, I've spoken to several lawyers who say this is not a credible verdict and that all 130 million Modis in India are not one collective group who can be defamed. But critics also claim that India's judiciary is perhaps not as independent from politics as it has been in the past. You know, there have been several cases of senior judges who have given verdicts seen as politically advantageous to the government, who have then gone on to receive roles in government committees and the upper house of parliament. And when it comes to Rahul Gandhi's appeal tomorrow, it's seen as unlikely the lower court will overturn it. But Gandhi is expected to take this all the way up to the Supreme Court. So can you tell me about the claims that the BJP is wielding power over the judiciary and why it matters so much? So the judiciary is at this point one of the last checks on the executive and it plays an enormously vital role in India's democracy. But under Modi, Since he came in, he has made a very concerted and often very public effort to have some influence over the judiciary. One of the first things they did when Modi was elected was try and halt the appointment of a judge to the Supreme Court who they felt was not in their favor. They tried to introduce a rule which would give them more of a say in judicial appointments, in the appointment of judges, and that was dismissed by the Supreme Court who called it unconstitutional. And so since then, they've been accused of using much more covert methods. So in India, judges are appointed independently by judges, but all of them have to be approved ultimately by the government. And the government has basically been accused of using this pocket veto to halt 
um, and delay the appointment of judges that it doesn't like, to push for the appointment of judges that it does like, and to push for transfers of judges who have made judgments that are not seen to be favorable to you know, the government's agenda, whether that's you know, giving bail to anti-government activists, whether or not it's questioning the role of police, whether or not it's questioning attacks on minorities. So in these kinds of subtle ways, the judiciary is seen to have been eroded. However, the BJP do deny there have been any attempts to undermine the independence of the judiciary. Hannah, what about the press? Now, they have a fundamental and essential role in holding power to account, but how free is the Indian media to criticise the government? So certainly a major feature of the Modi government has been this kind of erosion of the freedom of the press. The press is not seen as able to kind of fully criticise Modi. And, you know, there is this dominance of these very pro-government, particularly TV news channels, who spout this very often hate-fueled, very pro-government, very fiery rhetoric, which are watched by, you know, millions of Indians. The news organizations, particularly these online digital media organizations that have continued to be critical of Modi, have faced an enormous backlash as a result of this. You know, they have been raided, journalists have been arrested, they've had criminal cases filed against them. A global watchdog monitoring freedom of expression has named India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi as one of 37 predators of press freedom, world leaders who are accused of censorship and targeting those who work in the media. Well, this brings us quite neatly to this recent BBC documentary on Modi, which was critical and saw some pretty serious blowback. Can you recap what happened there? So this is a documentary made by the BBC uh, in the UK, which was looking at Modi's relationship to the minority Muslim population in India. And its first episode focused on an incident that happened before Modi was prime minister, when he was the chief minister of Gujarat. This was in 2002, and it was the Gujarat riots when some Hindu pilgrims had been on a train and the train carriage caught fire and Muslims were blamed for this incident. And it sparked a huge wave of communal violence, mostly targeted at Muslims. Over a thousand people were killed and about 80% of those were Muslims. Hindu mobs raged through the state, burning their neighbors alive and raping women. Whilst the police and authorities were accused of standing back and at times encouraging it. Narendra Modi, a self-declared Hindu nationalist, was chief minister of Gujarat at the time. He strongly denies any wrongdoing, though he once said he regretted Muslim suffering, as he would a puppy being run over by a car. Modi was accused of instructing the police and instructing his government to allow these Hindu mobs to carry out these revenge attacks. Mr Bajrangi made an extraordinary claim about Narendra Modi. He said that when he was arrested for murder, several months after the massacre, Mr. Modi helped him get bail by changing the judge. These accusations have been around since 2002. They were never a secret in any way. Modi was banned from the US for almost a decade as a result. And it's important to say that the Supreme Court cleared Modi of all charges related to the riots. Critics have questioned that decision. Some people have been accusing your government of not doing enough to stop this, of not protecting Muslims even now. These are also false propaganda made by our opponents. And you are also a 
captive of this false propaganda. When you look back over the last month, you've been the leader of this state through a very difficult period. Do you think there's anything that you should have done differently? Yes. The one area where I was uh, very, very weak, and that was how to handle the media. So the, the response by the government was what you could describe as disproportionate. This was a BBC documentary. This was not available in India. And whilst it got some coverage, the allegations in it were nothing new. But the government acted extremely swiftly, accusing the BBC of having a colonial agenda, of being biased, of being, you know, anti-India. How shallow the reporting of the BBC is. India is a country which gives an opportunity to every organization as long as you do not have a hidden agenda. They then used these kind of emergency laws to ban the sharing of any clips of this documentary on social media, effectively kind of banning mm. the film. And this prompted, you know, student groups to hold vigilante screenings of this. And those students who tried to do so, some of them were arrested. It created this huge kind of ruckus. And it doesn't stop there, because what would have been just another documentary on Modi, and there are tons, becomes a major international story. So not very long after this documentary was released, the BBC all of a sudden finds 50 tax inspectors at its headquarters. And they spent three days in the BBC offices in Mumbai and Delhi. They kept editors in there for three days overnight. They cloned phones, they cloned laptops, they questioned BBC staff. I should say that the government has denied this raid had any connection to the documentary, and they've described it as a routine tax survey. But particularly amongst the foreign press, it was seen as kind of a warning mm. message. You know, the BBC has an enormous presence in India. They have hundreds of staff here. They have local channels. It's not just the channels you're seeing on your TVs in the UK. It's also BBC Punjabi. It's BBC Marathi. So the presence of the BBC here is very strong. And if they can go after the BBC, then, you know, what else can they do to other international media? For context, Modi isn't the first Indian leader to be accused of media censorship. Indira Gandhi successfully expelled the BBC from India in the 1970s. But Hannah, what does it say that on the day that news breaks that the BBC has been raided in Delhi, that the only message our Prime Minister tweets is to celebrate Britain's wonderful trading relationship with India? Yeah, I mean, as the BBC raid was taking place, Modi was on a call with Emmanuel Macron, signing a deal to buy new Airbus planes from France. You know, the willingness for Western democracies to seemingly turn a blind eye to what's happening in India in terms of erosion of democracy and persecution of minorities is becoming more and more stark. The erosion of India's democracy has been seen to particularly impact on the Muslim minority, who under Modi's Hindu nationalist government have faced prejudicial policies, persecution, violence and lynchings. Muslim activists and journalists have been harassed and jailed. Muslims' houses have been arbitrarily bulldozed. Mosques have been burned to the ground. And there have even been calls for Muslim genocide by hardline Hindu leaders. And yet Muslims have found it increasingly difficult to get justice, be it through the police, the courts or civil society. And the fact that the British government avoided making any explicit statement about the raid on the BBC was seen as pretty shocking for the international press here. You know, you presume that this kind of raid would prompt a very strong statement from the British government. But their reluctance to do so immediately says a lot about the way in which they're handling India, 
know, how important they see Modi as an ally and their reluctance to take on Modi in terms of his domestic politics, even when it impacts on a British broadcaster. It wasn't until a whole week later that the Foreign Office made a statement about the raid. We stand up for the BBC, we fund the BBC, we think the BBC World Service is vitally important. Uh, we want the BBC to have that editorial freedom. That freedom is key. We want to be able to uh, communicate the importance of that with our friends across the world, including the government in India. Coming up, can anything shake Modi's grip on power? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus. Pankaj, can you tell me about India's image on the world stage? Because there is a lot of worry that the country is sliding towards authoritarianism. So how has Modi maintained such a buoyant image amongst Western leaders? Well, I think, you know, I mean, especially in recent years, India has become strategically extremely important to the United States and Western Europe. Uh, India is seen as a major counterweight to China and Russia. And it's seen as the sort of, you know, the country that might tilt the balance the other way. For many years, India has also been seen as an emerging economy with a potential market of hundreds of millions of new consumers. So every corporation, banks, uh, investment firms have been eager to get a share of what they see as a great bonanza. We're now a year out from India's next election. 
How likely is the prospect of a third Modi term? And could anything shake his success? I, at this point, if the elections were held tomorrow, he's very likely to win. A lot can happen in the in the next year. So the opposition in the country is beginning to get its act together. I think they've been shocked, bullied, humiliated into the realization that they need to work together to face this juggernaut of Hindu supremacism. But at this point, at least, uh, Modi looks pretty unstoppable. So how much of a threat do you think Modi actually represents to India's democracy? Oh, I think he represents a, a mortal threat uh, to India democracy. Not, I mean, I think we've gone beyond the stage of representing a threat. I think he's actively worked very successfully to undermine some key aspects of Indian democracy. He's completely dismantled, I would venture to say, the systems of checks and balances in, in India today. He's successfully subverted so many major democratic institutions in the country, from the military to the judiciary to educational systems to the media. So he, he no longer represents a threat. Uh, in fact, uh, he is, you know, actually succeeded in dismantling the foundations of, of Indian democracy. And I think it will take a long time for people to reconstruct those institutions because he's also incredibly damaged the social fabric of the country, the bonds that hold societies together. Countries, societies don't recover easily from this kind of extensive devastation. Pankaj, thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me. That was Pankaj Mishra, whose latest book, Bland Fanatics, Liberals, Race and Empire, is out now. And The Guardian's South Asia correspondent, Hannah Ellis-Peterson. My thanks to both of them. You can read more on this story and stay tuned to the latest on the Rahul Gandhi appeal at theguardian.com forward slash world forward slash India. Before you go, a heads up. The third episode of The Guardian's new podcast series, Cotton Capital, is out now. Episode three follows the journalist Deneen Brown as she travels to the Sea Islands in the United States to meet the descendants of the West Africans who picked the cotton that made Manchester rich. You can find Cotton Capital wherever you found this episode. And that's it for today. I'm Nashi Iqbal, and this episode was produced by Eli Block. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producer is Huma Halili. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.